Jeff talked how, about how a life shaped by the cross, a cruciform life, is a life of freedom. So we're continuing that same theme today, looking this today at the uh, text known as the Temple Cleansing episode, and specifically through the lens of Luke's gospel, Luke 19, uh, 45, and then we're going to go through 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 8. Uh, the Temple Cleansing episode occurs in all four of the gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we're going to be looking specifically through the lens of Luke this morning. And the title, or the, the topic rather, is the cruciform life. The life shaped by the cross is a life of access. And of course, you'll hear more about that in the sermon to follow. So uh, get excited. But before we turn to our text and read our text and orient ourselves with it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity that we get to be people that hear your word that I get to be a person that preaches your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our wills to understand and appropriate your word as such, that you would point us ultimately to the majesty of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that you would show us Jesus Christ in all of his splendor as we dive into this text this morning. Would you show us how all the scriptures point to and lead to Jesus Christ, and would you for, continue to form us and mold us into the image of Christ so that we love him, are more fascinated with him than we are with ourselves? Would you do that for us this morning? We know that you are the only one who's able to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, Luke 19, 45 through 20, verse 8, and uh, follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV, Texas printed in your bulletin, of course, and it's in uh, your Bibles, underneath your seat, on your electronic devices, or wherever else you access the scriptures. <clears throat> so follow along with me as I read. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if we were to go back in the uh, beginning of Luke's gospel and sort of run through the entire narrative of Luke's gospel again, one thing we would find is that the temple, the Jerusalem temple, occupies a significant role in Luke's gospel. For instance, all the way back in chapter 1, Right after this first, or the first four verses, which are the prologue or the preface to Luke's gospel, events right away are immediately centered in the temple. We have Zechariah who's offering up prayer and incense in the temple, and the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him about the birth of John the Baptist, who would be his son that's on the horizon. 
Then in the next chapter, chapter two, towards the end of that chapter, after Jesus's birth, Jesus as an infant is taken to the temple by his parents and presented in the temple. And we hear this beautiful prophetic expression of praise on the lips of Anna and Simeon. And then the very next section of scripture, Jesus is a 12-year-old and he's in the temple and apparently has wandered off from his parents. And when his parents find him, Jesus says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But curiously, following chapter two and following that single incident, Luke tells us nothing else about Jesus in his father's house. He's not in the temple again until the event that we're looking at today known as the temple cleansing episode. But this time, which is pretty clear from the outset, when Jesus arrives in the temple, he doesn't arrive as an eager pupil. He doesn't arrive as somebody who's ready to learn and sit at the feet of teachers. He doesn't arrive as meek and mild Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, the way that Jesus is portrayed in this temple cleansing episode flies in the face of many popular conceptions of who Jesus is, and perhaps even how we ordinarily picture him. He comes across kind of angry, doesn't he? I don't know about you, but if somebody went into the narthex right now and started flipping over tables and ripping up sign-up sheets, I wouldn't think they were the most mildest person out there. Perhaps this picture of Jesus in this text even makes us a tad bit uncomfortable or uneasy. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But the first question persists. Why was Jesus so upset? What led him to enter the temple in the manner that he entered the temple and start turning over tables? Well, in short, the problem was that the temple, which was the place where people would go, God's people would go to draw near to God. It was the place where they would go to offer sacrifices, to be reminded of their forgiveness of sins in and through this ultimate sacrifice of Christ that would come. This place of access to God had become utterly corrupted by the priesthood of the day. Looks, though, can somehow sometimes be deceiving because on the outside, the temple was marvelously adorned. In chapter 21, uh, just a chapter after the text we're looking at today, Luke gives us this narrative aside that many were looking at the temple and they were remarking about how the temple was beautifully, beautifully ordained with noble stones. The church historian, or sorry, the Jewish historian, Josephus, in one of his works, he gives us this beautiful description of the temple. And he talks about how the temple was overlaid with, with uh, this gold of great weight all around the temple, such that when the sun came up on the horizon and it struck the temple, it almost looked like a snow-capped mountain, at least the way that he describes it. And yet, despite the beauty and grandeur of the Jerusalem temple, the inside was a rotting mess of hypocrisy and corruption. And we'll talk about some of the specifics at play in the first century and sort of the first century priesthood and temple cultists. But in the place where it was the priest's duty to be intermediaries or representatives of the people, to help the people worship and enjoy God, in the place where it was their duty to help people find access to God, instead, the priesthood was erecting barrier after barrier that only served to bar access to God. They were more focused on capitalizing off the spiritual needs of others than showing forth the grace and the mercy of the God of the covenant. Now we're gonna take a look in a, in a minute at the uh, situation that was at play in this first century context. And my suspicion is that the more we look at the situation at play and the more we sort of wrap our minds around what was really going on, my suspicion is that we'll be prone to think, how dare they? That priesthood of the first century, man, oh man, they were corrupt people. 
And they were. But I think that when we really get to the heart of what the priesthood of the first century was doing and what Jesus calls them out on, I think we'll discover that functionally speaking, we're not immune from similar problems. You see, whenever you and I functionally pursue God or access to God through other means than the God-ordained means of Jesus Christ and him crucified, whenever we add on to Jesus Christ our morality or our resume or our devotional life, and the list could go on and on and on, we're not only erecting barriers of our own making, but we're also presenting a picture of God to the outside world just like the priesthood did. We're presenting primarily a picture of God who is far off, and virtually inaccessible. A picture of God who wants us to behave and get in line before we belong. But that's not who God is. And in this way, Jesus' temple action and his subsequent speech challenges not just the regnant priesthood of the first century, but I think it really challenges you and I in some pretty substantial ways. It challenges us by taking our eyes off of ourselves and drawing them to Jesus Christ and all of his splendor and majesty. And it teaches us that the cruciform life, a life that is shaped by the cross, is an access life. It's a life that freely communes with God and a life that holds Jesus Christ up as the only means of access to God. And so I want us to focus on three things pertaining to the accessed life that I believe this passage teaches us about. So not two things, not four things, three things, of course, right? Predictable. I love surprising you guys. Uh, So these three things that we're going to focus on are the barriers of access, a vision for access, and the person of access. And Jesus leads us down this road when he tells us barriers of access that the first century regnant priesthood were erecting. He gives us a vision for access, what the ideal of the temple, what the temple was supposed to be. And then he shows us, spoiler alert, himself as the person of access. So first, first things first, we find in this passage that through the temple cleansing episode, Jesus indicts man-made barriers of access to God that have been erected. And I'll say at the outset that there's two ways we could look at this point. On the one hand, the reality of sin and the existence, the very existence of a temple in the first century and before presupposes that apart from God's initiative, we have no access. Our sin is the primary barrier to access, but it's a barrier that the covenant God in his grace and mercy has seen fit to overcome And this is what the entire sacrificial system of the temple and even the temple itself foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. The entire system looked forward to the blood of Christ offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins. So when we talk about barriers to access, that's the primary undergirding presupposition of all of this. But on the other hand, and this is primarily where the text focuses upon, we can look at barriers of access from the standpoint of what the priesthood was doing to prevent worshipers from worshiping God according to the God-ordained means that he's already instituted. And this is what shapes Jesus' action in the temple. The God-ordained means for his people to worship were being undercut time and time again, by the priesthood who were essentially preventing access. Look with me at the text for a moment. The first barrier we read about is in chapter 19, verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. Now, I said in the introduction that this temple cleansing event occurs in all four Gospels. And so we could look at all four Gospels for a lens into the temple cleansing episode. And interesting, Luke's has sometimes been called the most or the 
the least violent, so to speak, of all of them, because it doesn't give us as many details as some of the other accounts give us. I think John's account and maybe Mark's account even talks about how Jesus walks into the temple and he didn't just drive out those who sold, he started overturning temples, or sorry, overturning tables, there we go. And then where he was standing in the court of the Gentiles, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and I'd like to imagine what this looks like. I can't quite wrap my mind around it, but apparently Jesus was standing in the court of the Gentiles and he was preventing people from using the court of the Gentiles as a shortcut through the temple. So whatever that means, Luke's account, though, tells us right at the outset that Jesus drove out those who sold. And this is a reference to a pervasive practice that developed in the first century, whereby the court of the Gentiles, so the court of the Gentiles was this place on the outskirts of the temple precincts, and it was the only place where Gentiles and God-fearers, those who were not part of Israel, it was the only place where they could go in prayer and meditation and worship God. They couldn't go any further than that, but they did have a place designated so that they could go for worship. But Jesus, when he's telling us that he drove out those who sold, what he's referring to, or what Luke is referring to, is he's telling us that this place, this court of the Gentiles, had apparently become overrun by merchants, by those who were selling sacrificial animals that were bought in the thousands to come into the Jerusalem temple during the Passover week. There was a great need during the Passover week because you had pilgrims coming in from all over to worship and to offer sacrifice at the Jerusalem temple. So Luke is telling us that these merchants set up in the court of the Gentiles because it's a convenient place to set up, and all of these animals are being sold in the court of the Gentiles. And moreover, they're being sold at inflated rates. Second, in order for worshipers to pay the required half-shekel temple tax, that's a tongue twister, they would have to exchange their Roman currency. So they would come into the temple with uh, their Roman currency and they'd be required to exchange, much like you're going to a different nation, they'd be required to exchange their Roman currency for whatever the currency was that they had to pay in the temple tax. And so apparently the money changers who were also set up in the court of the Gentiles were all, were where they would exchange, but they would do so at such exorbitant rates that it would basically bleed dry the worshipers. And this entire commercial engine, this entire commercial enterprise which was existing in the first century was underwritten by the high priests of the day. The Jewish historian, again, Josephus, tells us that he, he talks about Ananias, the high priest Ananias, in one of his works, and he calls Ananias a great hoarder up of money. He says that Ananias apparently orchestrated with other of the chief priests this system whereby they would rob some of the lower priests of their tithes that were due to them and their food that was due to them, such to the point that many of the priests died because they were hungry, especially the older priests. And this whole system was underwritten by the high priest. So Jesus is entering a context where there's one-upmanship throughout the entire priesthood, the priests, the high priests, and this, this entire commercial engine is robbing people of access towards God. These people are being exploited. These pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover can't even, can't even afford to offer sacrifice. They can't even afford to, to, to participate in the God-ordained means that God has set up for them. And then furthermore, the only place for Gentiles to gather and worship God has been completely overrun and overtaken by this commercial engine. Can you understand why Jesus is maybe a little bit upset at this? You see, the temple leadership and the priesthood, they were called to be a bridge. They were called to be representatives between God and the people. But in effect, they were more like the Korean DMZ 
and that they did more to bar access to God than they did to help worshipers come in to worship the almighty God of Israel. And so Jesus indicts them and the temple merchants through his action and through the quotations that he quotes. One of, the, one of the passages he quotes in this text is Jeremiah 7. And essentially, Jeremiah 7, he's invoking Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 in that context was an indictment on the priesthood. And it was an indictment of the situation that took place during Jeremiah's day. So Jesus is basically invoking Jeremiah 7, saying that the same thing that was present there is present at this point today, too. The priesthood is utterly corrupt. They're barring people who are coming to worship the living God from worshiping. This is no light matter. But how does this text speak to us in light of that? How does this main point speak to us? Well, one question that would be wise for each of us to consider is how do our lives present God? You see, even though the Old Testament office of priest is no longer operative because Hebrews tells us and we confess that Jesus Christ is the great high priest and the entire office of priesthood, there is something called the priesthood of all believers that flowed out of the Reformation in that sense that all of us as believers in Christ, we have a sort of priestly function to play in that we don't need a mediator to access God because through Christ, Christ is the great high priest. He is the mediator. We don't need a human mediator to access God. The priesthood of all believers also tells us that we have a role or responsibility of showing the grace of God in our worship to the nations. This is exactly what Peter gets at in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter tells us, he, t- he calls the church, you are a kingdom of priests. We are a kingdom of priests, but we're a kingdom of priests for a purpose. And Peter goes on to say, you are a kingdom of priests so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. You see, one of the goals or, or aims For us, as we'll say many priests, so to speak, is to reflect the grace and glory of God in our lives. So the question arises, do our lives reflect the excellencies of Jesus Christ? Do our lives reflect the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Or are we, like the priesthood, unknowingly erecting barriers of various sorts that prevent people from seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified? Now, there are, of course, endless ways that we could go about asking ourselves specifics and dissecting maybe our own hearts in regard to that question. But one way I think that we erect barriers in our lives is through our lack of forgiveness. If we're people, for instance, who hold grudges, a people who harbor resentment, a people who make others pay tenfold before we forgive them, what are we communicating about the grace of God in Christ? You see, one of the functions of the temple was to be a place of atonement. It was to be a place where people could go to be reminded of the forgiveness of God in what would be Christ who would come. But the priesthood of the first century essentially made people pay for forgiveness, as we've already seen. So does the way that we interact with our friends and our families and our coworkers and so forth subtly communicate the message that they have to pay too? See, the cruciform life is a life of access, in that not only are we a people who have access to God in Christ, and that itself is a marvelous reality, but we're also a people who embody the gospel through our quality of forgiveness that we exhibit to our friends, family, coworkers, outside world, etc. 
Well, this leads to our second point. Second, Jesus paints in our text a vision for access of what, what is the ideal? What should access look like? In other words, what vision does he uphold for what the temple itself should be? Well, Jesus' use of Isaiah 56 is, uh, is a crucial window into Jesus' vision for access. So if you're looking at the text with me, and specifically verse 46, Jesus says, it is written. And whenever we read that term, it is written, that's always to introduce an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament of some sort. And what, old, what New Testament authors, what Jesus and some of the New Testament authors frequently do is they introduce what's called complex quotations. And that's when they take a number of Old Testament texts and they sort of combine them together to say one unified message. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's taking um, the second part when he called them a den of robbers. That was Jeremiah 7. But the very first part where he's saying, my house shall be a house of prayer, well, he's evoking Isaiah 56 in that text. Now, Isaiah 56 is a text that looks forward from the standpoint of Isaiah, who's writing, we'll say, seven or 800 years prior. It's from the standpoint of Isaiah, who's looking forward And he's envisioning a day when eunuchs and foreigners and the outcasts would be brought into the presence of the Lord in worship. The text begins by encouraging, first of all, the foreigner and the eunuch not to believe the lie that God ultimately wants nothing to do with them. Instead, the Lord proclaims through Isaiah that he will give the eunuchs and the foreigners and the outcasts, he will give them within his house and within his walls, quote, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 56, which is the part of the text that Jesus is quoting from right here, we read this. And the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. One can imagine, thinking about the situation that existed in the first century, that perhaps the leadership and the priesthood gave lip service to this vision. After all, at least they had a court of the Gentiles. At least they could check off that box and say, we've done our duty. But of course, their praxis indicates little more than ambivalence about the nation's. And as a a result, not only did they completely miss God's vision and heart in Isaiah 56 for the nations, they also missed an integral component of the original intent of the temple, what the temple was even designed to be. Another Old Testament text I want to point us to for a second, and this is important. In 1 Kings 8, at the culmination of the construction of the first temple by King Solomon, or overseen by King Solomon, King Solomon, he stands... Um, at, the, at the altar of the first temple, and he offers up a prayer of dedication for this temple. It's a beautiful text, 1 Kings 8. But I want to focus for a second on a couple verses towards the end of that. In 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43, and let me read you what Solomon prays in that text. Again, this is pertaining to the first temple has just been constructed, and now Solomon is offering a prayer of dedication. And we read this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth might know your name and fear you. 
as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Friends, the temple, in its original intent, was to be a beacon that drew the nations to Israel and ultimately to the God of Israel. It was essentially one of Israel's evangelism strategies, we might say. Now, to, to use a, a couple terms from physics as an illustration, John Hughes, you're going to be so excited that I'm using physics terms and maybe rebuke me when I get them wrong later. Um, <laughs> but it's often said that Israel's mission in the Old Testament was largely to be a centripetal mission. If you're familiar with centripetal force, centripetal force, I guess, is a vector that goes inward towards a center. Am I right with that? Largely, thumbs up, I'm good. So Israel's mission was largely centripetal in that the temple was supposed to be this place where the nations would see the worship of God and they would flock to Israel to worship the God. Oftentimes, this is contrasted with the New Testament mission, which is centrifugal, which is outward vectors. The church is sent outward to the nations, and of course, there's overlap between the two. But the point is that the temple and the priesthood of the first century were called to exhibit the centripetal mission in that their worship and what they did in the temple was supposed to call the nations to Israel to worship the triune God. But the passion and the vision that the priesthood should have embodied for the nations flocking to the temple in worship had divulged into mere lip service. And this is how we make sense of what Jesus is doing in the temple cleansing. You see, his anger isn't directed, uh, his anger isn't directed towards something as simple as the temple potluck was non-kosher. The worship of God had become a commercial enterprise and the heart of God for the nations was ignored and insulted. That is why Jesus is so furious in this text. And we said at the outset in the introduction that maybe the way that Jesus is presented in this text makes us a tad bit uncomfortable or uneasy because it's not probably the ordinary way that many of us picture Jesus. But I love what R. Kent Hughes writes about this. And he writes this. He says, Now Jesus is indeed the meekest and gentlest person who ever lived. But meekness is not weakness. It is rather strength under control. Meekness has the strength to not defend oneself. Jesus, when he went to the cross, for example. But meekness will boldly defend others. And on this account, Jesus struck out in defense of the holiness of God the Father. Another commentator notes that there are three important qualifications that we have to keep in mind when we're sort of dissecting what Jesus is doing here. First, this commentator writes that Jesus' anger is always other-centered. I'm sure we could uh, invoke a panoply of other gospel texts to show that. Second, he only gets angry when compassion or faith is blocked. And then third, Jesus' anger does good. It aims for the well-being of those that don't have a voice. You see, Jesus is utterly passionate about others. First and foremost, the glory of God, but then also the well-being of others. So friends, what are you most passionate about? What angers you or moves you to tears more than anything else? That's a question I know I need to ask myself too. Because for Jesus, it wasn't his own rights and it wasn't his reputation. It was the honor and glory of God and God's desire for the outcasts and the foreigners and the nations to come unto him in freedom and in worship. Are you that passionate for the lost? Are you passionate for the down and out? Are you passionate to show justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with our God? 
The priesthood was well attuned for looking out to the, for themselves and in the process, to use quotation from Jeff's passage last week, biting and devouring one another. And friends, that's really the only outcome when ultimately all we're concerned about is ourselves. Relationships will be destroyed. They'll become a game of one-upmanship, just like they were for the priesthood. But what does it look like to give richly of ourselves, just as our Lord Jesus Christ gave richly of himself, without insisting on our own rights or self-interests? What does that look like? Are we passionate about that? The cruciform life is a life that continually dies to self for the sake of others. And then third main point, Jesus is the person of access. So look with me what Jesus immediately does after his temple cleansing episode. We read this in verse 47 where it says, and after, so after he did all this stuff, and he was teaching daily in the temple. He was teaching daily in the temple. He stands in the temple, apparently, turns it into his pulpit, and he starts teaching. But this is no innocuous action, as it might seem at the outset. This is the Lord who, in fulfillment of a text, Malachi 3.1, last book of the Old Testament, this is the fulfillment of that passage where the Lord has suddenly come back to his temple in order to refine it. And in the process of occupying the temple, Jesus is communicating something even more significant. He himself has become the new temple. He has become the person of access. I love what one commentator says. He says that the scriptural reality here was then and still is that the true temple has come into the temple. And now, as Jesus occupies and teaches in the Jerusalem temple, we're given a clear indication that he is now the person of access. What the temple failed to do in the old covenant, Jesus himself would do in the new covenant. He is the very presence of God, the radiance of God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Whereas the temple and the priesthood were but a shadow of that, Jesus is the real deal. And as a result, Jesus Christ has become and is the only means of access to our God. But now the question, another question, another wrinkle into the narrative arises as we proceed on to the first eight verses of chapter 20. What gives Jesus authority to make these claims? What gives Jesus authority to claim not only that the priesthood is corrupt, not only God's vision, but also that he himself is the new temple? What gives him that authority to declare such a thing? That's the question on the lips of the scribes and the, and the, uh, the priests, chief priests and the elders as they come up to him in chapter 20, verse 1. Now, the simple answer for Jesus when he is confronted with this question right off the bat, the simple answer would, of course, for him to, be, for him to say, well, me, I give myself that authority, and then maybe drop the mic and walk away. But he doesn't do that, does he? No. To do that, he would be entirely correct if he did that, but to do that would be play right into the trap the leaders have set for him. So Jesus in his uh, quick-wittedness, he sets a trap of his own by raising the stakes and bringing in his forerunner, John the Baptist, into the equation. John the Baptist, who we haven't seen till cha since chapter 3 and I guess since chapter 7 in Luke's gospel, Jesus is bringing him into the equation once more. You see, John the Baptist, he was beloved among the people. It would have been catastrophic for the chief priests and the elders and the scribes to say that John's baptism was a scam. It's just a scam. For them to say that, that would have been catastrophic. Furthermore, it could have even cost them their lives. Because to call a real prophet a false prophet 
brought the punishment of stoning. That's why the chief priests and the elders and the scribes say in this text, well, if we say that he wasn't a prophet or his baptism wasn't from heaven, then they'll stone us. That was a very real deal. They could have lost their lives for saying that. But if they admit his baptism was from heaven, they're also revealing their own sin and failing to respond to Jesus in the first place. And moreover, and even more crucially, if they say that John's baptism was from heaven, then they're also affirming that Jesus is the Messiah because that's exactly who John the Baptist said that Jesus was. So what a bind they find themselves in. So times like this, I wish I was as quick-witted as Jesus on my feet. But there's also a tad bit of irony in this text and in this back and forth between the two in here. How in the world could those who were incompetent to judge John the Baptist, who say, well, uh, ultimately we don't know, how could those who were so incompetent to judge John the Baptist ultimately sit in judgment over Jesus? But that's precisely what happens, isn't it? As one commentator put it, as seemingly uncertain as they are about John, they would be quite dogmatic about Jesus. Jesus' claims were too much. He undermined the entire temple industry. He undermined the way that the temple priesthood was making their dough, so to speak. In their eyes, the only appropriate action for Jesus was death. And in that sense, the shadow of the cross and the shadow of Jesus' impending death hangs over this entire narrative. Spoiler alert, that's where the text leads us, right? To the crucifixion, to the cross, but it ultimately leads us to the resurrection too and to the victory of God in Christ. And so at the same time we read about death and the impending death that is on the horizon, how the cross is on the horizon, we can't forget that the victory of God in and through the cross is ultimately intricately bound up with his death. And in the very next passage, Jesus tells us this. He tells us through a quote, another quotation from Psalm 118, where he says that the stone the builders rejected, ultimately pointing to himself, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejected, humiliated son of God would also be the victorious king, the true prophet, and the great high priest who becomes for his people the true temple and the only means of access to God. The temple in, full, the temple in whom the full measure of God's people are bound up in. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, eunuch, etc., etc., are all built up in Jesus Christ, and joined together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's language that sort of echoes Ephesians 2, where Paul tells us that Christ is the cornerstone. Same, same word that's used there in Ephesians 2 that's used here. Christ is the cornerstone, the true temple in whom God's people are brought together as one in Christ. We find something about the vision of the church in that. That the vision of the church isn't that we would be a bunch of individual, scattered, inward-looking people who do their own thing and pursue their own vision. It's that we would become one in Christ. And together as the body of Christ, we're invited and freed in Christ to bring all that we are to our God. Because we have access in Jesus Christ. We can bring the raw material of who we are. We can bring our doubts, our fears. We can pour them and lay them at the feet of Jesus because he is the only means of access to God. And this very vision is rooted in what Paul tells us again in Ephesians 2, namely that in Christ Jesus, we as a body, we're no longer slaves or strangers or aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
in Christ. Friends, we're given access to God in Christ, but we're also given a new family to the church. Another point of application that arises from this text that I, I was sort of struck by this when I was reading in verse 48, where Jesus, after he cleanses the temple and turns his temple into his veritable pulpit, the text tells us that all the people were hanging on his every word. Think about that. They were hanging. They couldn't get enough of his word. If Jesus is really who he claims to be, Jesus really has the authority that he claims to have in this text, then why would we hang on any other word? Jesus has the words of life and his evaluation on matters is true and it's life-giving. For us to hang on any other word ultimately is to bring death to ourselves. We see in here that the cruciform life then is a life that recognizes the person of access as Jesus Christ, listens intently to the person of access, all within the new temple, the new family, the church that he has erected in and around himself for the glory of God. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are, that in Christ we have access to you, that the very, the very reality that we can pray to you right now is undergirded by the work of Jesus Christ, who has not casted us asunder. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Pray that we would partake in our identity as children of God in Christ, and that we would freely commune with you in light of that incredible reality, knowing that you haven't cast us asunder, that we are your people and you are indeed our God in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.